everybody, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, and when I'm not talking on this podcast or writing all about endurance sports in a million other locations, I am hopefully outside doing one of those endurance sports. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach, and you are here on the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we talk about all different types of movements and sports, and we try and pull that back into the different movements and sports that you like to do. You know, I was just at the uh, the World Cup in Waterloo, Wisconsin this, for, this for weekend. For cyclocross, yes. Yeah, the cyclocross Not World tennis. Cup. And I was super excited how many people came up and asked where you were, first of all. Well, that's good. Um, yeah, people, people who listen to the podcast. So if you came and said hi, um, thank you so much for, for coming out and hanging out and and chatting. People I, recognized your New Jersey twang. I know, yeah. I had a couple of different people. I'd be walking on the course talking to someone and someone would be like, wait, is that Molly? Uh, so I guess I have a more distinguishable accent than I necessarily and there was realized. Some, some fans of Shred Girls and some, I saw some cell phone covers and then there was a couple Saddle Sore the Book yeah. f- fans. I don't know if they're fans of Saddle Sore the Book, but I, I'm <laughs> emphasizing the book. They're yeah, not yeah. fans of psych- that they've overcome because of the book. Or- uh huh. There you go. Yeah, it was just a really, really, really fun weekend, and it was super cool getting to chat Quite with all these muddy. different people. Muddy. Yeah, the racing was—I mean, it's never been muddy in Wisconsin. It has historically in the in the, in the whole state, in the entire state, okay. forever. Uh, now, at the Cyclocross World Cup at the Trek headquarters. <laughs> Thank you. Context. Context. Um, it has historically been boiling hot and bone dry. And all of a sudden, you woke up at four in the morning on Sunday before the World Cup to rain coming down in buckets. And like, I'm not saying this lightly. I went out for a run at 8 a.m. and I have never run in that much rain in my entire life. You're saying a lot because we have a good habit of going out uh, on a nice sunny day in the summer and getting just completely caught in the worst ty- like typhoon of the, of the summer. Is typhoon water? I think so. I think that's a typhoon. Um, yeah, I remember the time my dad had to rescue us because it rained so hard when we were trying to walk to a family event. Yes. It was it was worse than that. Okay. So there was a water spout. Yes. Okay. Like, yeah, at one point I, it lightened up just enough that I could stop and get a coffee and a scone like near the house. This is not selling how bad it was. And, well, <laughs> Did and you get I, avocado toast as well? You're just not going to let me finish any story this morning, are you? Well, I mean, this was a horrible lead, and it was a typhoon, I was, a little literal water spout. I was getting there. It, like, edged out to a drizzle at the end of my run, and I was like, okay, great. I'm going to get a scone. I'm going to get a coffee. This is going to be perfect. I'm going to walk back. Got my coffee, got my scone, got out of the thing, and immediately it just dumped rain again oh, like like okay. the rain had been like saving itself up for a few minutes right just to take your millennial self and just soak your avocado toast i didn't get avocado <laughs> toast okay so we did that so that's good uh did you write or or video anything that people can check out from the world cup yes uh you can find a bunch of stuff over on flow bikes website i did a bunch of different videos for them i'm still putting out stuff for them now i have a ton of content backed up so working through that there is a gallery over on shred girls.com of the women's race that i shot um, and there's going to be some stuff over on bicycling as well so look for links to that on my socials i'll be sharing all of that as it kind of keeps coming out um, that's at molly j herford for anyone who is new to the show that's awesome. Uh, you were busy. Yeah, very, very busy. It's been a really fun weekend. It's been a while since I've been kind of in the trenches reporting. And I mean, it was literal trenches, like 
slipping and sliding around. One girl skidded into me and sent a tidal wave of mud towards me um, in the last lap of the race, so that was good. Right. It's uh, a very good theme of uh, like water-based uh, natural disasters. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I was at the 8-hour in Barrie, Ontario, so this is a big sort of year-end fun event. Uh, so it was good riding, uh, saw a lot of people, had a lot of good conversations, seemed like the like end of season, like, should I continue riding question was big. So I did a post on Instagram that then I turned into a post on my website at smartathlete.ca, so you can check out Instagram as well if you want to see my musings on this. But end thing is just make sure you take a week off at some point couple more weeks if you're injured or, or sick but uh, when in doubt it's definitely the time of year even if you're into cyclocross but uh, especially if you're you've raced a full season uh yeah so well that was that good fun at the race good talking to people and seeing everyone yeah and then just a couple of housekeeping items we have uh peter has a few cyclocross clinics still coming up you can find out about them over at smartathlete.ca and we'll then, link in the show notes too yeah and then we finally have all of the dates and the information out for the women's gravel training camp that we're going to be holding in Girona, Spain in March. And this is adult women. Yes, I think it's important. Women. We do do a bit of the shred girls stuff, of course, but yeah. this is more directed at adult women. Yeah. So if you're interested, definitely check that out. I mean, I know March sounds like it's ages away, but it'll creep up pretty quick. So yeah, definitely look that up. We'll have that in the show notes as well. Um, and then... Before we dive into today's guest, if you've been wondering about how our LaCloche run went, um, if you head over to theoutdooredit.com, I have a lot of articles about how it did not go as planned uh, and how that's okay. Uh, I think we're actually going to have someone on to kind of talk about it in a more global what does failure mean for racing sense. Um, But I mean, really, it was it was an adventure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very common right I think people especially in their day-to-day don't you know they're used to seeing podium or they're used to seeing people winning marathons or whatever right but there's a lot of swing and miss right there's the classic whether there's I think there's a Wayne Gretzky and a Michael Jordan quote about you know I've missed 90% of the shots I took or something Mm -hmm. and And you miss all the shots that you don't take right right I feel like there's like ones that are comical like that too there's yeah and actually, that leads very nicely into today's guest, uh, Megan Roche. You might remember her husband, David Roche, co-author of The Happy Runner, was on back in February. Yeah, really uh, good. People like that episode. Very yeah. positive. Yeah. Uh, David is my coach. Uh, this was actually my first chance getting to chat with Megan, and it was a really, really fun conversation. We actually do touch on the LaCloche incident, we'll call it. Oh, because uh, this was after you Yeah. Talked. Okay, that's great. Good. Yeah, so we kind of talk a little bit about this idea of, um, you know, what it means to be mentally tough and mentally resilient. And honestly, to some extent, like, the weirdness you feel about being resilient and, like, are you being too resilient? Um, mm-hmm. Is it okay to be resilient um, when you feel like you should be mourning the, the loss of a goal more? or wondering if you should be. So it's a little bit philosophical in the middle there, but I think in a really helpful way for a lot of people. Uh, and we also talk about a bunch of practical running stuff as well. And I think it's it's a really interesting episode. It's a really good compliment to David. So if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely go back and listen to it. If you haven't picked up their book, The Happy Runner, definitely pick it up. And I'll say that even if you're not a runner. 100%, yeah. If you're an endurance athlete. Someone who was talking to me, you know, over the the weekend about, you know, being a little down or wondering what it all means and should you race cyclocross and so forth. Yeah, I think it's 
it's one of the best books on kind of like a happy, optimistic mindset without being obnoxiously, you know, all positivity all the time. Like, And Megan just had a big injury and maybe still dealing yeah. with that. Yeah. Yep. So we yeah. talk about that yeah. a bunch too. So yeah, if you're dealing with an injury, again, even if you're not a runner, I think this is a really good one because okay. we talk about some of the pluses and how an injury can, you know, you can look at it in a positive light. And you have a couple posts on the outdooredit.com about the the incident, as you call it. The incident. Cool. Uh, yeah. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with Megan Roche. The the first question I kind of always ask someone, especially when it's someone who's a very multi-hyphenate type person like yourself, is when someone comes up to you and says, you know, what is it that you do? How do you describe yourself these days? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. So I usually start uh, as a runner just because I feel like running is so wrapped up in my identity. And mm-hmm. it's probably the thing that when I wake up in the morning, it's the thing I'm most excited about. Mm-hmm. So I usually say that I am a professional trail runner and coach and that I do a lot of writing and talking about running. And then in addition, I am a physician and I am doing a PhD actually starting next week at Stanford. So I'm like super excited about the combination of all of those. That's so exciting. What, uh, what's the PhD in? Do you have like a specific thing you're going for? Yeah, so my PhD is in epidemiology, which is a very long word to describe essentially data science in medicine. And so I will be looking at genetic predictors of injury and then also doing some research on bone stress injuries and other injuries and athletes. So I've been working with the Stanford tracking cross-country team and looking at bone stress injuries in those athletes. Oh, that's so cool. And obviously a subject that is, I'm sure, very near and dear to your heart. (laughs) Yes. And it's just like, it's such a rewarding population to work with because I've gotten to know the athletes well, and they're a highly motivated population and they're just like interested and engaged in the research project. Mm -hmm. So I have to back up. How did you come to find running and trail running in particular? Because I know you kind of came from a different path. Yes. So I grew up playing a bunch of different sports. I played soccer and basketball and ultimately went to college to play field hockey. And kind of what wove the, what was woven through all of those sports is that I loved running. So the, the day when the coach would call everyone to the line to do wind sprints, I always got excited, complimented by those like nervous butterflies that you get on the start of a, of a line just because I loved the process of running. And then in college, I, after finishing up field hockey, I took a fifth year to run track and cross country and really dove into the sport during that time. I also realized, though, that I'm not, I'm probably not the best mentality for running on the track. I, uh, after that experience, I went on to become a trail runner just because I love the freedom of running in nature and using running to explore different trails. Okay. And obviously trail running like clicked for you, not just in terms of what you love, but what you're good at. So what do you think made you, you know, become such a good trail runner in addition to, you know, loving it? (laughs) So I think for me, I have always loved like being an athlete at the core. And so I felt like when I transitioned from the track into trail running, it kind of combined those skills that I loved as a soccer player, a field hockey player, and a runner. So it was like jumping over rocks or, you know, flying down a downhill and trying not to fall flat in your face. Like those are all things that I trained doing as a kid. 
And it just kind of combined my love for all of the sports and running at the same time. The other thing, too, is I think I've always thrived off of being more of a strength athlete. And to me, trail running just rewards strength and resilience more than track running or more than some of the like road running or typical marathon racing. Yes, I completely agree. And I feel like that's that's kind of a big thing for me as well. Why I really kind of fell in love with trail running is I think I'm actually much more built for long distance trail running than I am for, say, like road marathon, because I'm much more of like a muscular athlete compared to the people that you see winning marathons, for example. Yes, I totally, I totally agree. And of course, like, there's so many, like, I think, marathon running also rewards that too but I think like trail running it's such an asset and I think for me too it's like the way that my brain works is I just love like the freedom to try different things or to Uh experiment so like you know in a long distance ultra race it's like trying out different feeling options or like there's just like so many different ways that you can kind of be a free spirit on the trails in a way that like cranking out like consistent splits or consistent track workouts it's it's very it's very different on the on the track and the roads Yes, absolutely. I enjoy trail intervals much more because there isn't really like a certain number you can necessarily hit or a pace if you're on a different trail that you haven't been on, right? It's just go hard. Yeah, and I find it's so refreshing. I find for athletes that I coach who are transitioning from being track or or road athletes that transitioning into that and being like, oh, well, I'm not defined by this exact or I don't have to set out and try to hit this split and this isn't what defines success in a workout. I think it's so freeing to come to that realization. And I think for a lot of athletes, I think it supports like healthier long-term running. Yeah, absolutely. And okay, so that wasn't going to be my initial question, but now I really want to know. So, I mean, I'm sure you get a lot of athletes coming to you who are kind of that type A person who wants a pace and, a, you know, exact split and like gold and that kind of stuff how do you work past that and get them to be like no it's it's okay if you're not running on a certain pace because this trail is you know different from day to day yeah so for athletes who are trail runners i really emphasize that by me giving them by me as a coach giving them specific splits or specific efforts it's very possible that I could be limiting them as a runner because it's hard i think i think on trails it's hard to generate like specific paces, specific efforts that are specific to to what the athlete is training for. Mm -hmm. And I really want them to develop that relationship of running by feel and running by effort. Because ultimately when when a race comes around, you know, I, I would I want athletes not to be constrained by pacing and not to be constrained by exact splits. And getting into the habit of training that way in a workout makes it a lot easier to have that approach on race day. And I find too it just it harbors consistency because I think when you're not judging, when you don't, when you don't have the oppor- that opportunity to judge yourself during a workout, it becomes a lot easier to hit workouts and to really embrace them as a fun part of the week as opposed to something that could be potentially like a dreaded part of the week. Yes, that's kind of exactly what I've found because obviously I work with David, your husband, and he kind of has, you know, obviously a pretty similar view on that. And he, I keep saying he's the only coach I've ever been able to work with. Um, Most coaches give up on me after like a month because I am terrible for like not wanting to record everything perfectly or like wear a heart rate monitor or anything like that. And this has been the easiest way for me to actually follow training, which in turn has led to better performance as it turns out. (laughs) I love that. And I think, I think for me, I think probably like 80 or 90% of the runners that I coach and work with 
have the tendency to drive towards perfectionism and kind of like wanting to nail the exact workout. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you remove those constraints, it's just, it's remarkably freeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm going to, I'm going to kind of change topics completely because the one thing I have been dying to talk to you about is this idea of body image and weight and stuff like that as a runner. You guys talk about it a ton in your amazing book, The Happy Runner, um, you know, dealing with that idea of a runner needs to look a certain way or a runner needs to be a certain weight. I remember when I first started working with David, I was like, I think I should lose five pounds. And he's like, I don't think that's a thing that you should be thinking about at all. And it turned out it wasn't, and it's it's worked out really well. But yeah, I mean, I'd love it if you could just kind of talk through how you came to your current stance on body image and running and finding the quote-unquote right weight as a runner. That's a great question. I would say that body image and running is probably one of the most important topics in running. And yes. I think it's something that like, I would just love for everyone to have more open conversations about just because I think it really further the dial furthers the dialogue, but also normalizes it too. Because yeah. I think from coaching athletes, again, I, I mentioned that perfectionist tendency before, I just see so many athletes who are prone to thinking about body image, both females and males. I think mm-hmm. sometimes it's often underrepresented in the male population. But for me, I, I personally experienced that like transition to thinking too much about body image because as a field hockey player, it was like, I never really thought about what I eat. You know, I, I, I viewed fuel as performance, fuel as strength. I would go out and have like nachos and pizza and mm-hmm. beer on, on like before, before competition the next day. And then once I transitioned to that college track experience, I felt like my teammates were thinking a lot about body image. And as a result, I did too. And it was, for me, it was just like such a drastic shift to go from the mentality of a field hockey player to a runner. And I ultimately probably had, I was never formally diagnosed, but I'm sure I had some form of disordered eating mm-hmm. and really viewed running as this like power to weight ratio, which in reality, it's not. Running is about having the strength to develop consistency over time. And what happened is that I progressively lost weight. And had some strong performances, actually, for about six months or so. And then my body just tanked. It was like injury after injury and then overtraining and not feeling like I had the energy to run. And I see that far too often in runners where you can kind of maintain a like a strong power-to-weight ratio by losing weight initially. And it really does come back to bite you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think the problem is, is that we don't have... We don't have the feedback from people who go through that and come out the other end. But for me, that was eye-opening, and it shifted the conversation for me and made me want to go out and just talk about it and be open about the experience that I had as a runner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, spend a lot of time with other runners and I think pretty much every runner I've ever talked to will at some point admit like, yeah, I want to lose five pounds. It's always five pounds or 10 pounds or something like that. And it's funny because like <laughs> yeah. most of the time, like, like it's such a, we're like, we're like prone to like those, like the, like the, the multipliers. It's like five, 10, 15, 20. Exactly. It's, it's such like, an arbitrary goes, thing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, if you said to me you want to lose like 7.3 pounds, I might like be like, okay, you have a basis for that. You figured it out. But I think since I was like 12 years old, I've always wanted to lose five pounds, like quote unquote. And it doesn't even matter what I weigh. I will still say I want to lose five pounds. I haven't weighed myself in two years. And I'm still like, yeah, I kind of want to lose five pounds. Um, so how do you deal with when a, a runner you're coaching comes to you and says, I want to lose weight? How do you, how do you talk them through that? 
well, I think it depends on the situation. So there are some runners who come to me and they might be considered overweight or they might be obese or like they might have like a legitimate reason for weight. And that becomes a very different conversation and one in which I'm very careful about because oftentimes it can be a slippery slope. You know, if a runner wants to lose weight, it's like you want to make sure that that doesn't become a habit or that doesn't become something that they become addicted to. Mm-hmm. And so that's like, that's a little bit of a different conversation. A lot of runners that come to me, they say, you know, I want to lose 5, 10, 7.3 pounds. Yep, yep. And, uh, <laughs> and often it's not, I don't think it's a productive thing for them. My, my philosophy with athletes is I'd rather have you be one pound overweight than five pounds you know what I mean it's like it's just it's so important not to get into a pattern of negative energy availability that in many of the situations I talk athletes out of it and just really highlight the the concept that that running is about strength and consistency over time and it's nearly impossible as a runner to have negative energy availability or be trying to lose weight to to be performing uh, at a strong level in the long term. And that's where that conversation often goes. The other thing that I mentioned, too, around this topic, too, is that we all have different genetic set points. And so what, what, what might look healthy on one runner might actually be unhealthy for another runner. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. I think playing the comparison game with weight is something that runners should avoid and something that, again, I would love to have more conversation about. Yes, I could not agree more. And I mean, again, it's, you know, you kind of hear it with every group of runners, it's going to come up and it's, it's hard not to start hearing like, oh, she weighs five pounds less than me. Does that mean I'm the wrong weight? Like, would I get faster if I lost it? But yeah, it just seems like kind of a futile thing because it doesn't really seem like anyone ever hits the point where they're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm at a good like, this is good. I don't need to lose five pounds. <laughs> and I think that's such an important point, too, is that, like, everyone struggles with this. And I think, like, it, it, you brought this up earlier, but I feel like if you ask runners, 90% of people would say, oh, I don't love my body image. And I think once people understand that that's, like, a normal thought process, it almost makes it, like, you can have those thoughts pop into your head and it becomes easier to clear them or to accept them or to, like, think about, like, why they're there and why they exist. Yes. Um, so how do you walk the line of eat, like eating healthily and, you know, actually taking in good nutrients and all that kind of stuff while that kind of open-ended, like, pizza, nachos, like, everything's amazing kind of eating process? <laughs> that's, that's another really good question. So <laughs> I have a lot of people who struggle with that. It's like, well, I want to eat healthy, but it's like, I find that oftentimes too many rules or, like, heavily constrained diets can be... Uh, like eating disorders or, or disordered eating in disguise. And so I think it's it's a tough line to walk between wanting to eat prefer, for performance and, you know, just wanting to have like a normal balanced diet, if that makes sense. Yes. So for me, I try to just make sure that I am eating things I'm craving, that I'm eating things that are delicious, things that excite me. And at the same time, trying to make sure they're reasonably healthy. But really, at the end of the day, I just try to eat as many different foods as possible and make sure that I don't have, like, rules surrounding that. Yes, I think the, the Particularly rules, Particularly for yeah. time of day that, that um, I'm eating. I never really, when I had disordered eating in college, I never really struggled with, like, the timing of it. But I work with some athletes who have very specific rules about, like, what time meals should be or what time snacks should be. And I think removing that pressure and just allowing yourself to eat when you're hungry and to eat as many delicious things as possible is helpful. Mm-hmm. So my my husband, Peter, who's usually my co-host, he's out today. But um, he was also wondering, though, 
you know, when you're talking about someone who's time limited in terms of how much they can run and, you know, saying they, they do maybe have a bit of weight to lose, um, I just kind of wanted to speak to the fact, do, do you believe in the whole you can't outrun a bad diet? Like at some point we do have to actually eat fairly healthy if we're going to actually get to a, you know, reasonable body composition. Um, yes. Yeah. No, maybe. So <laughs> Sorry, that, that was super open-ended. <laughs> Yeah, so I think this speaks also to the genetic point. I think everyone's genetics are different. So some people have higher baseline levels of cholesterol, higher baseline levels of uh, glucose and, and things like this, So or higher predisposition to diabetes. So I think it's, it really depends on individual circumstances, and it's hard to kind of like draw that line of what you can outrun. I would say that it's easier in your youth. So I see a lot of college mm-hmm. athletes who can eat, eat whatever they want, and it doesn't impact their you know these, these long-term metrics. But I think it really, I think that really depends on the individual level. Yeah. And I think just using, like trying to use common sense as much as possible. So, you know, I think going out to eat nachos five or six times a week probably isn't productive for long-term health. And that's something that is yeah. like, that, that needs common sense. But going out on the weekends and enjoying yourself and having fun, I think is more than fine, especially if you're running. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And I'm very into the one or two nacho nights a week. <laughs> I I definitely find myself on the, okay, maybe it's time to add a couple more vegetables back in side of things uh, more often than not. So it's, yeah, or it's you a balance. Yeah, or some spinach on nachos. I've definitely gotten creative mm-hmm. with nachos before. It's like, can you put broccoli on nachos and make yes. it delicious? Or like, Absolutely. You know, what can you do to like spice up these, these delicious uh, recipes? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and okay. Total, total shift of topics because there are just so many big ones that I wanted to cover with you. The next one is injury. You had a pretty major hamstring injury in the last couple of months. So let's just start with that. How has recovery gone with that? Good. It's been going shockingly well, actually. So back in May, I ruptured my high hamstring. I was running in Boulder and stepped in a prairie dog hole, and I immediately felt a grab in my butt, and it kind of felt like I sprained my ankle, but in my butt. (laughs) So I called David, my coach, and was like, "Um, I think I just ruptured my high hamstring, and then it did, actually, it felt a little better, and I kind of like walked jogged home, and was like, no, no, I'm fine, and then ultimately did realize that I had, had a ruptured high hamstring and had surgery on it. In some sense, though, the ruptured high hamstring was a blessing for me because I was dealing with high hamstring tendinopathy for a year and a half and was really riding that roller coaster of some days having good hamstring days, some days having bad hamstring days, and like struggling to find the pattern and consistency in it all. And it just, it was overwhelming as an athlete to have that like roller coaster for a whole year and a half. So in some sense, the hamstring has been great because I have this like post-op protocol. It's actually attached, uh, which I probably had gotten to the point where I had a 20% hamstring. So I think in some sense, actually surgery, surgery has been really helpful for just like allowing me to have a more linear recovery process. It's so interesting. Peter was just reading a book about back pain and it said the one major plus of getting back surgery and the guy who wrote it does not really believe in back surgery is just that it forces this post-op protocol and that's actually what does much more of the good so I feel like that's a pretty common thing right like the surgery is obviously important but it's it's more the recovery process after and actually taking that time off not being like well it feels maybe okay today so I'll kind of try to run and then that injury re-injury injury re-injury process that's so true. And I've seen this with other athletes that I've worked with as well. But for me, 
it allowed me to go back to the fundamentals. So I was non-weight-bearing for six weeks, so it was like I was starting with, I called I called my legs a baby quad just because it had shriveled to, like, nothing by the time that I had started bearing weight again. But it allowed me to just build everything back up from zero and focus on strength, focus on biomechanics, and essentially just, like, start with a whole new body and, and start over again. And there was something just really awesome about that I think both mentally and physically and it's been empowering in the last 15 weeks as I've rehabbed from surgery okay that, that's just such a great emotional way to look at things it's instead of looking at it as oh my gosh my life is over my season's over whatever I feel like you looked at it as like a chance to have this like makeover montage moment and just yes <laughs> they should really advertise that in surgery it's like <laughs> getting like a hamstring butt lift it's like my, my yeah, exactly. montage moment <laughs> Yeah, for sure insurance companies wouldn't pay for it at that point. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, if you could just set it to music and, you know, cut it to like two minutes, it would be an amazing little montage of coming back. I mean, it gives, yeah, you, yeah. gives you a comeback well, story. I, I, <laughs> I think the other thing for me in this hamstring process was, so I had seen a, a couple of different surgeons actually to try to figure out who was going to do the surgery for my hamstring. And in the process, I was told by four surgeons that I wouldn't make a return to running again, just given the way that the hamstring had ruptured. It had ruptured tendon off tendon as opposed to tendon off bone, which is like more of the classic hamstring rupture. And ultimately, I did find a surgeon who told me that he thought I could return strong and perhaps return stronger than before, just given the way that the surgical mechanics worked. And as a result, it was like I went from totally being at zero, thinking like I wasn't going to have a running career again to having this hope. And I think for me, it's like now every day is a gift or every day that I'm able to get out there and run and work through this is a gift. And I've seen that with other athletes going through injuries too, mm-hmm. even something that's less major than this. It's like just the restoration of appreciation for simply getting out the door to run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to a much less extent, I had a bit of a minor knee thing last year that, yeah, I made it so every run hurt. And it was such a shock to me to realize that I I had just taken it for granted that running was a thing that like didn't hurt anymore. And yeah, kind of getting through that and coming back now, I'm every time I run, I'm like, oh, okay, this is actually amazing. I'm not, you know, annoyed that I have to do five more miles or, you know, two more intervals or whatever. I'm like, oh, thank God I get to run. Exactly. Do you find that you have, it's interesting in this process, I found that I do have a little bit of what I call injury PTSD. The PTSD is oh, a strong yes. word for it. It's like, it's like if I like sometimes if I wake up in the middle of the night and have hamstring pain, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm doomed. The world is ending. Do you have that with your knee where you feel like you're you're like not necessarily like it's just that you're afraid of it or, you know, you you might interpret different signals because of the past that you've had? Yes, it's like a, it's phantom pain. I feel like um, it, it's like you read about, you know, if someone has a something amputated, they can still feel that limb I feel like it's like that with athletic injuries there's like this ghost of the injury just kind of malingering in the area like do you hurt maybe (laughs) it's so true and I find it's funny too because it's like it's hard to separate out what is ghost and what is real pain and that becomes for me like one of the hardest things as an athlete and it's something that I find that just kind of like mentally tugs on you too Yes, absolutely. And okay, so you are a doctor, a coach, and an athlete. So do you do you feel like you have three different personalities approaching the injury, or do you have like a holistic approach? I would say more of a holistic approach. I try to shut out the doctor window when I'm <laughs> my own injury. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and actually, you mentioned before um, choosing a different, you know, going to different surgeons and, you know, talking to them. I feel like there's a lot of athletes who get injured and go to one person and, you know, just whatever they say is kind of the end all be all. Can you speak to the importance of, you know, seeking other opinions when you are kind of in something that critical? Yeah, so I ultimately went to five different surgeons, which I realized is a lot, but the first four told me I wouldn't return to running, so I was like, I'm just going to keep searching yeah. until I find someone who has confidence and who can inspire confidence in me. And the surgeon that I found, Dr. Denario, out of Seven Denver, was just incredible, and I instantly knew the moment I walked in the door, and he walked in with like that confidence that I wanted him to be my surgeon. And I tell athletes, I think sometimes athletes are hesitant to seek multiple opinions, but it's just powerful. It's like, I think you really have to, like, your body is your own tool, and it's so important to speak up mm -hmm. in the medical field or, or when you're visiting a doctor and just make sure that you're getting the care that you receive. And it's been eye-opening to me to be both a doctor and an athlete because I have, like, a little bit more of an understanding of that process. And, you know, sometimes doctors make mistakes, and yeah. like, being being able to advocate for yourself is just powerful. It's so funny. This self-advocacy thing is this kind of new term to me, I feel like, and it's something I keep trying to practice and I'm terrible at it. I was just realizing today I was getting a, you know, I went to Taylor to get a dress hemmed and, you know, she pins it and she's like, oh, is this a good length? And I'm, I probably would have put it like two inches longer, but I didn't want to say that because I didn't want her to have to repin it. So I was like, no, this is great. Fine. And now I'm going to have a dress that's slightly shorter than I wanted it to be. And I'm like kicking myself as we're talking. So I'm like, man, if I couldn't advocate for myself with a tailor, how am I supposed to do it with like a doctor in this situation? It's so hard. And I think it's actually, I see it more of an issue or like harder for female athletes just mm -hmm. for whatever. And it makes, it makes sense given like, you know, everything that, that females have to like rise up against essentially. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think for me, I've kind of, I've noticed it's become a problem for me. Like, it's one of the greatest things that I struggle with. And so I have this bridge where it's like, I kind of am like, well, if you think it would be best, and it's like, I, I kind of like, <laughs> I have to be more powerful in how I approach it. But I use like kind of that like qualifying language. And then like, and then I kind of like make my request or advocate for myself. Yep. <laughs> I feel like I almost need to have it like written down and like go, I, if I was in your situation, I'd probably have to have it like written down and like go in and like hand it to them. Just because I'm terrible at actually speaking my mind sometimes. so <laughs> It's so hard. I feel like we all need to practice in front of the mirror and just like have yes. a few sentences that we, that we need to speak our mind and just get, it to, just get it into our life pattern. Yeah. Okay, speaking of things in front of the mirror, one of the things I remember loving about the happy runner was this idea of like writing out, you know, a mantra or like a almost note to self that was somewhere that you could see it all the time. Do you, do you currently have one of those up anywhere? Yeah, so another, so a theme throughout our book was this concept of you are enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's funny, it's like you, David and I wrote this book, and some of those messages, it's like I need to go back and reread the book at like, critical moments in my life. Mm -hmm. Because I think for me, like, I often struggle with that fact of being enough. And it's, it's one of those things, like, I feel like my personality is such that there's always more I could do, or there's always more I could give to someone, or always, always ways in which I can improve. And just standing in the mirror in the morning and looking at myself and saying, you are enough, is, has been something that's powerful for me, especially as like stress starts to build around a new life situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny. Uh, so last week I was trying my like last big goal of the season had been to try for this 80 kilometer like FKT loop uh, at this park near us. 
and it did not work out. Uh, we had a navigational mishap and ended up running five miles backwards along the course, um, which sounds really hard to do, but it was a very gnarly trail and it was a very twisty section, so it happened. It's embarrassing. Um, anyway, didn't get it, and I had told a bunch of people, and I was super upset and really bummed to have to like tell a couple of friends that you know, like, okay, I'm back at the park. We didn't make it, but I needed to tell them because they would be like calling the park ranger if I hadn't gotten in touch with them that day. So I texted them, and one of them sent me back, just like, just remember, this didn't define you. Like, you are enough. And I was like in tears over it. It was like the nicest thing someone could have said to me at that point. <laughs> That's so meaningful. Also, navigational errors are tough. I think every trail runner, anyone who's done like some longer adventure has been in that position before. And it's like, it's so defeating to like to get lost and to, to feel like you're off course, especially when you put in the miles that you put in and the work that you put in. And it's, it's remarkable how you responded to that. Yeah, it was, oh my gosh, you should have seen me on the side of the trail, just like bawled my eyes out for like five minutes and just so angry because it wasn't until like we flipped it accidentally at mile 15 um and then it wasn't until five miles later to mile 20 of this run that I realized because we passed the same people that we'd passed on the way out and they're like oh we thought you were doing the whole loop and I was like oh god no 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 they must have taken a shortcut like my brain could just not compute that that happened Oh, so bad. <laughs> How has your thought process been since? I know that's one of those things that's like, I feel like you go through like the different stages of grief when you go through something like that. And like, for me, eventually I wind up getting a comedy, but like, how has that been for you? That, actually, the stages of grief is perfect because it was first de- denial, then it was a lot of anger. I'm like, you know, trying to like not blame Peter for it, not blame myself for it. And then just like desperation, bargaining, like maybe we could turn around and like, make it and do it. And then finally it was acceptance. Um, actually, so this is interesting. I feel like I flipped the switch on it pretty quickly. Like even with it, you know, I had my like crying jag for like five minutes, you know, then we had to keep moving because we're out. We might as well finish the run, you know, not hike it in. We've got 10 more miles. So we did it. And I think I like kind of mentally got over it pretty quickly. Like by the time we got back to camp, we were, you know, laughing and hanging out and I had a chipmunk jump on my hand to eat a chip and hang out with me and we had a campfire. And I then felt really guilty that I wasn't devastated about it longer. But all I could think was like, well, what am I going to do? Like, there's nothing I can change about this situation. It's, it's here. It's happened. And I mean, of all the ways to end a run like that or have a run like that not go according to plan, like I didn't sprain an ankle or tear a hamstring or get giardia in a lake trying to filter water um (laughs) you know like no one got injured we got out of the woods just fine and you know i was running the next day and everything felt great so of all the things to go wrong a navigational error is not the worst I am just so impressed by that outlook and i wonder too like based on everything that i know about you it seems like you've just had a lot of experiences where like you've been defined by resilience or like opportunities where that might not have gone the way that you've wanted and you've turned those into like these like incredible new opportunities. And so it seems like, like a part of that, I wonder is like you, you, you seem to have really good practice in this area. I, I hope so. Or I, I like to think so, but then I was like, ah, oh, does this just make it like, I just don't care enough. But I was like, no, I, I care a lot about this. 
Um, it's really just, I think I realize it's not going to do me any good to be upset about it, but you it's know. So true. Yeah. And I think that's like, that's a line that I, that I struggle with often. It's like the line of like caring too much and not, it's like, it's like trying to define yourself by something, but also not like not trying to make it like your entire life and exactly. like and moving on. It's such a difficult, like it's, it's so difficult to navigate that. Exactly. Yeah. So it's been a very big mixed bag of feelings in the past week, but you know, we came home, I figured out like, okay, I, you know, only ran 50 miles or 50 kilometers. So I still have energy. I can do another race in October and things are fine. It just means I can go back to this trail next year and try to even go lower than I thought I was going to, because I was on pace for a much better time than I expected. So yeah, I think lots of positives came out of it. <laughs> and I mean, That's I, so great. like I played in the woods for seven hours with my best friend in the world. Like, there's worse ways to have spent a day, right? <laughs> yes, and I think that's one of the great things about trail running is that, like, there is such amazing beauty involved in it. That, like, even when things go wrong, so I had this one race in, in Europe where I was, like, literally pooping on the side of the trail in front of, like, all these, like, tourist groups. It was, like, the most beautiful <laughs> place in the Matterhorn. And it was, like, you know, like, even if things are going wrong, I'm still, like, I'm still out in the woods in this incredible place. And that's, that's something that I love about trail running. Yeah. And actually, it's funny. I was going to ask one of the questions I had was, um, how do you deal with on race day when things don't go according to plan? Do you have kind of like a series of mental things you go through or physical things you go through when that happens? Yeah. So I think the way that I approach races is that I expect for things not to go to plan. So like I very rarely accept a perfect race. And that's, that's again, the nature of trail running and ultra running is there's just too many variables to be able to control them all. And the goal for me is that I feel like in training, I try to embrace those variables to like embrace the times that aren't necessarily going well. So like whether it's, whether my run got delayed or like my legs aren't feeling good or I had to eat lunch and then go for a run. It's like, I try to embrace those as learning experiences that I can then bring to race day. Mm -hmm. So I would say that most things for me that have gone wrong on race day, I've also experienced in training and have come to embrace in training. And so I think, I think that's part of it. The other thing is just looking at it as comedy. So like, you know, laughing at yourself when things might not go right and being able to view it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you and David are two of the most, I'd say, like, optimistic or, like, happy people I know, but, like, in the most genuine way that I can possibly imagine. So I have to ask, how how do you keep that up? <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think comedy helps a lot. So David and I spend a lot of each time, a lot of our time together laughing at each other and, like, being open and honest about that. I think also, too, just being willing to embrace, like, we've had a lot of hard times I mean not like not like you know I think people people out in the world have experienced a lot harder things than we have but like relative to our own lives we both had difficult moments and I think being able to take a step back and just understanding that it will be okay and that like we both have developed the tools to deal with these moments I think I think that's been a helpful mindset for both of us mm -hmm. yeah it's funny at one point I you know I'm updating my training log every day and at one point David is like you know it's okay to say you've had a bad day or like something didn't go right and I was like to be honest right now if I think about it like everything's going pretty good considering like I'm you know running at you know noon and getting in like 16 miles on a Wednesday and life like I just don't really have anything to complain about like could I be like oh yeah like it was a little hot today sure or like uh it didn't feel like amazing at this one point but 
you know, overall, I don't really have a whole lot to complain about. So it's hard for me to write like a negative training log. <laughs> that perspective is, is helpful. And I think that perspective like develops more and more with time as you grow with new experiences and as you grow as an athlete. The other thing I've really learned as an athlete is just the power of listening to intuition. So I think before, I think over the last couple of years, I've really come to just listen to the emotions and the thoughts that I'm feeling and just taking them for what they're worth. So like, you know, waking up in the morning and maybe not feeling like I want to get out of bed or waking up and feeling maybe angry or frustrated or sad. And just like listening to those emotions and thinking about why they're there and acknowledging them as opposed to trying to fight them or like constantly be optimistic. I think acknowledging them and just bringing light to them is helpful. Yes, absolutely. And that actually leads really nicely into one question that um, Peter wanted me to ask is uh, for runners who aren't feeling super motivated and would maybe prefer to sit on the couch instead of getting out. Um, what is the the happy runner? How would you approach that with a client in getting them motivated to get out to run? Yeah, so I think there's two different ways that you could look at that. One is in an athlete who has been kind of like consistently pushing the limits or has been in a really hard training cycle. And I think in that situation, it's important to think about stress, both in terms of running and in life, mm-hmm. and making sure that the athlete's not slipping into any sort of overtraining or overreaching. Because sometimes the lack of motivation or not feeling like you want to train, it's actually the body's way of telling you that you're pushing too much in life, you're pushing too much in training. And in that situation, I would tell an athlete, either just get out the door and do a super easy, like 20 to 30 minute shuffle, just get the legs moving, or to take a rest day and to listen to the body. Mm-hmm. Then I think the other situation is in an athlete who might not be at risk for overtraining, but just has a lot going on in life and maybe is struggling to get out the door. We all deal with that. Like I think across every runner, like we all have these Tuesday runs where it just feels hard to get out the door. And what I say is like, remove the metrics, just go out, don't look at pace, just say, hey, I'm going to be out here for 30, 45 minutes and get in some time out there, maybe turn on music, find different ways, music, podcasts, anything to just like lighten up the run and take it easy and, and make sure to listen to your body. Yeah, yeah, I love that. The The one thing I always end up going with is like, okay, you could not run today, but you're not going to watch Netflix or read a book right now. You're going to either work on this article or clean the house or do something that's actually productive. And you know what? Suddenly running doesn't actually sound all that bad. <laughs> it's so true. The other thing, too, is I find the first few steps out the door are the hardest. It's oh, like yeah. The first three or five minutes, like, it's like the body is like telling me, it's like, oh, don't make me do this. <laughs> oh. And then it gets like progressively easier from there. So I think like understanding that is helpful. Yeah, please. For me, the worst part is like putting on the sports bra for some reason that is, oh, and like socks. Those are my two biggest yeah. struggles. <laughs> I have recently started this like dynamic warm up that involves like, it's like part dynamic warm up, part dancing. And I feel like it really helps me just like, it helps wake my body up and kind of like prepare for those first three or five minutes and just like because it's a routine it's like my body knows it's going to run after going through and doing this and that's been helpful oh I love that do you just like literally dance around or do you have like a straight up like dance routine or what do you do <laughs> what is this <laughs> So I, I have this dynamic warm-up. It's like the classic, like, hugs, uh, like, like, um, 10-man shoulder, shoulder, 
because I can't even speak <laughs> Tin Man Soldier things. Uh, so I have this like whole progression that I go through. And at the end of each little like exercise, I do some kind of dance move. So it's like usually it's different every time. I don't have enough dance skills to have like a coordinated choreographed scene. But I think it's just like the action of it that it's helpful, it's joyful, it gets the body moving. I'm totally picturing this as like a, do you remember like those old like Paula Abdul dancer size videos from like the early 90s? Um, oh, totally. That's yeah, basically what I'm, I'm like, imagining. <laughs> Except I'm really not a good dancer, but I have like no care in the world and it's like 6 a.m. in our apartment complex. (laughs) So it does not look like that, but in my mind, it kind of does. Mm -hmm. Um, And oh, oh, the life versus athletic stress. I would love it if you could just kind of remind everyone that life stress, you know, plays into athletic stress and vice versa. Absolutely. So the way that I look at it is that we all have this bucket to fill. And like what goes into the bucket is cortisol or a stress hormone that the body produces when we go through stressful situations. So the interesting thing to think about is that like the bucket is the same for everyone and running and life feed into that bucket equally, not equally, but like they both feed into that bucket. And so as a result, things like being up in the middle of the night with an infant or having a stressful presentation at work or traveling, Those are all things that feed into that stress bucket in the same way that running does. And so it's important to listen to how your body is feeling and to make sure that you're adjusting your running in the context of the other life stressors that are going on. Yes. I mean, it's so easy, especially now with social media. And I like hate to do this because I'm like, oh, everyone talks about the comparison trap on social media and stuff. And it feels like kind of played out, but I still feel like it's always worth re-mentioning. But it's so easy to, you know, scroll through Instagram and be like, everyone is running more than I am. And just be like, you know, super disappointed in yourself, even though you have no idea what the other person's actually doing, number one, and then number two, like, how their life stress and what they're doing in their life compares to what you're doing. That's so true. I think the other thing is, as I spoke before about, like, the genetic influences on body weight and mm-hmm. how every, every body is different. I also think the same thing for stress. So I coach some athletes who struggle with stress or who like, like one stressor to them might be very different to another person's stressor. And I think like, just because one person seems to be conquering the world in this area doesn't mean that like we all can do that either. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is also something that's helpful for athletes to think about. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, one runner's mileage might not genetically be a mileage that's going to make any kind of sense for you. Exactly. And we all respond so differently to training. And that's the fun thing about being coaches. Like, you get to figure out how different people respond to things. Mm-hmm. And so I have some athletes who respond really well to 35 miles a week and other athletes who respond well to 80 miles a week. Yeah. And you clip them and each athlete may not excel. And it's, it's interesting to see that play out. Mm-hmm. Okay, kind of rapid fire here. I'd love to get some technical running tips since you're obviously pretty awesome at trails. Um, trail uphills. What are your best tips for running uphill well? Ooh, that's great. So I think leaning into the hill, like you don't have to be crazy about it, but I think if you've seen videos of Killian Jornet power hiking or running up steep grades, his his torso is often uh, pretty far forward. And so making sure that you're not like, you're not bending backwards. So like really keeping that forward lean going as you're, as you're going uphill is helpful. The other thing is relaxing the shoulders. So I see a lot of athletes tense up the shoulders as they run uphill. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that starts with relaxing the jaw. So like tension in the seat can, 
can project down to tension in the shoulders. And so just making sure that upper body is relaxed as you're leaning forward and as you're powering uphill. Oh, I love that. It's so funny. When I first started cycling and was racing a road like 10 years ago, I remember we were going up a hill in one of my first races and the girl next to me was like, hey, just so you know, like what my coach has told me is like, just try to let your upper body relax because you're wasting so much energy with how tense you are. Because like I had like a death grip on the bars and like I'm (laughs) just like murdering myself trying to get up this thing. And as soon as I relaxed my shoulders, it was a million times better, but I never thought about applying that to running. So I'm so excited to think about that now. It's great. I've done some runs actually with heart rate monitor and like I can actually visibly see the changes in the heart rate as I relax my upper body and as I relax my face and jaw. Oh, cool. Now, do you have any tips on keeping your jaw relaxed? Because I can definitely relax mine for like half a second. And then if I check it again, like five seconds later, I'm like, yep, clenched again. It's hard. So I think with all of these like changes in either like relaxation or technique or biomechanics, just kind of like working and working it into small pieces of the run. So starting like in the first five minutes of of a run initially and being like, I'm going to focus on relaxing my jaw, kind of reminding yourself to do that every 20 seconds or so. And then progressively working up from there to where it becomes more of a habit. Because I think like if you go into running, like I'm going to relax my jaw for this entire two hour long run, it just becomes exhausting to think about. And like bringing it down into more manageable chunks helps it translate over time. And it's just that brain jaw connection where you just have to tell yourself to relax it. And oftentimes that means it's like, not not grimacing sometimes like a gentle smile can help i think it's it's usually different for everyone Mm -hmm. actually i have noticed yeah the power of just smiling a few times throughout the race it's amazing what it does for your whole body because i feel like it actually changes your like stress hormones and how your brain chemistry is working it's true and there's studies out there on that too which and there's some powerful studies that it can improve running time, you can improve uh, running times. And so it's fun to see something like that translate into science. Not to mention it looks way better than race photos. <laughs> it does. I've had some like race photos where I just have like goo drooping down the sides of my face. And there's like a grimace going on and it looks yep. a heck of a lot better with a smile. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then what about running downhill? Yes, this is something that I see a lot of athletes struggle with. So I would say, we, David and I use the phrase, let Jesus take the wheel, is just to really remove <laughs> that tension from the body. And it's horrifying. At first, it's like, it's really horrifying. I actually didn't consider myself a good downhill runner. And then in one of my first trail races, I showed up in Magnus Boulay, who's a Western States winner and just an all-around awesome trail runner was at the start line. And so I... I was like, oh my gosh, I have to race fast. And I burned off the bottoms of my feet running downhill. <laughs> it was like, to me, it was like, I think every athlete just needs that like moment in training or a race where you just take the brakes off and realize that you can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can do that pretty well in like an open double tracky situation. But as the terrain gets gnarlier, I definitely get more and more tentative, which I feel like actually just ends up leading to more mistakes and face plants anyway. Yes, that's true. And I think another thing, like, um, from a technical standpoint, I think, like, having the looseness in the body, so, like, making sure that your upper body is not tense. I see that often on downhills is that, like, things start to tense up as you worry about, like, tripping or falling or, like, hitting a rock. Mm -hmm. So keeping that, like, keeping, avoiding that tension and then also making sure, like, the cadence and turnover is high so that you can respond. Like, if, if if a rock comes up, 
so you're not overstriding and like hitting that with all of your force. So keeping your cadence or your turnover a little bit higher as well too. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned the tension. Peter makes fun of me because I, I was an Irish dancer when I was a kid. So very like arms straight at your sides. And he said, when I run downhill, you could definitely tell I used to do that because I was just, I get super, super tensed up. Um, and luckily this oh, summer, but- I think I've, I think I've gotten over it, but. <laughs> Those dance skills are probably great though for like navigating rocky terrain. I love that. That's awesome. I hope you still practice. I do not. Unfortunately, I put, you know, handed in my wig like 15 years ago. You used to have these like amazing giant curly wigs and giant dresses. It was it was a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. Well, I like I bring so I have that field hockey background, so I feel like I have this like twisting in terms of like my upper body motion yeah. on the trails. And it's interesting how like things we do in youth kind of come back into our running or come back into our our athletic life. Yeah, I feel like with soccer and field hockey, you guys probably did a fair minute, uh, amount of like uh, the agility kind of drills of like the ladder and stuff. So that must be super yeah. helpful. I love ladder drills. I actually give ladder drills to some athletes who feel like they who are really motivated to work on technical downhills just because I think it does help with like the, their neuromuscular connection and establishing kind of like the, the, the brain-body connection. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. I was actually thinking about bugging, uh, trying to add that to my off-season because I feel like that's something I never, ever did as a kid. This is like the downside of being a super inathletic kid is you miss out on a lot of those things. It's not so much that I'm like, oh, I'm sad I didn't run cross-country or I'm sad I didn't, uh, you know, play soccer. But like just those little drills, uh, you know, I did not have them. <laughs> I don't know. Irish dancing sounds like a very complicated sequence of ladder drills that I could never do. So I'm sure you will like you will start the ladder drills and just feel like you'll feel like you're doing a jig immediately off the start. That actually might be true. I think if I could maybe think about it like that, it would probably go better. But I'd have to be on my toes a lot more. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, uh, but yeah, you should you should start it. It'll be interesting. <laughs> um, and okay, so the the last question is: you you and David have Addie Dog, who is literally the cutest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, could you give me a quick pitch on t- as to why dogs are very helpful, even if they're not necessarily the best runners? Every time I have a guest yeah. on the show that has a dog, I try to get someone to give me a pitch for why I need a dog. So. I love it. So Addie has been the gateway dog for like 20 different families at this point because it's a very pro <laughs> dog. Uh, I think like across the board, dogs are like just the most amazing creatures. Like for me, it's like, like last night I came home a little bit late from work. It was like 7 p.m. And I opened the door and Addie squealed for about two minutes because she was so excited to see me. I'm sure at that point she thought I was like never coming back home. Um, like there's little things like that. It's just like continuous excitement that comes into life. And I think the other thing is that that excitement applies to everything. It's like we go on a walk. It's the best walk ever. We go out to dinner. It's the best burger she's had ever. And I think seeing like the excitement through her eyes changes how I view the world and changes how I view like things that could be considered simple things that do become the big things. Mm-hmm. And I it's know, the power of having a five second memory. <laughs> I, lo- I love it. And I know she's not really much of a running dog though, right? Like she doesn't do major trail runs. No. So she used to run quite a bit as uh, a younger dog. She's seven now. And we took her for a pretty hard 10 mile run around six minute pace. And after that, she refused to run again. Oh. I think she was like, I've seen my limits. Like I do not, I do not need to go through this, but 
So she'll run. She'll do like adventures with us off leash, but she won't run with us on mm-hmm. leash. And we respect that. I mean, I think you know she knows what she likes, and mm-hmm. we're just so grateful for the love that she brings. Mm-hmm. So it's still worth. It's definitely worth getting a dog. It's a hundred percent worth getting a dog, and I think like when we were running with her again, it's like you're seeing the trail through her eyes. Like you're seeing the little things that she sees, and it just it makes a run even more meaningful. Yeah. And okay, I have to actually add one more question because I meant to ask it and I forgot, but you mentioning coming home from work a little late reminded me. I remember listening to you on a couple of podcasts and you seem so just ridiculously busy. How are you balancing? And now you're going to have this PhD stuff going on too. How are you balancing all of the things that you do? So I think for me, I've, I've had a lot of difficult decisions about like whether I wanted to go into clinical practice as a physician or whether I wanted to go into research. And it's definitely been a year of a lot of different decisions. And I think that along the way, I've made decisions to do things that bring me a lot of joy and that I love. And of course, it's like, it's hard to love something every day. It's like, you know, I, I probably love these things 90% of the time and that feels reasonable mm-hmm. to me. But I think as a result, it's like, I'm doing a lot of different things that I love. And so it makes it easy to prioritize those things. But I think in addition to that, I keep my life very simple outside of those things. So, like, I enjoy spending time with David and Addie and doing these things and running. But it's like I don't – as a result, I say no to a lot of other things that could seem exciting. And uh, I think the power of saying no has been helpful. Yeah, that's that's another one. Like, self-advocacy I need to get better at. <laughs> but Yes, I've been – I used to terrible at it and then I got myself so overcommitted that I was I was like at a point where I was so stressed where it was like I need to learn how to do this mm-hmm. now do, I do you find yourself traveling less as a result or how did how has that worked well re- recently I've actually been traveling more just because there's been a series of things that I I haven't been able to say no to but I think <laughs> travel is one of those things that can kind of tip the scale for a lot of people it's like I think it throws people out of their routines or it's, it can just be challenging. So I think it's important, like, if you're traveling to really ask yourself, like, is this essential for who I am? Is this going to bring added joy to my life? Or, like, is this something that I really need to do for work? And filtering it through that lens is helpful. And I think, like, I have a few different lenses which I filter decisions through. And I think I think that framework has been big for me. Really wish I'd talked to you like eight weeks ago. I feel like it would have changed the next like three months worth of plans for me. (laughs) (laughs) You can also like, I think people really respect me call up and just say, hey, I'm really overbooked or, you know, I'm like, I'm going through a little bit of over life right now. And like, it's just, I I can't do it. I think people respect that. Yeah, absolutely. We have, we have friends that just make fun of us because every time we say, oh, we're totally going to be around for a while, they've just started rolling their eyes at us because they know we're (laughs) lying. (laughs) I'm like, one day I'm going to say it and mean it, but not today. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of those things saying no gets a heck of a lot easier when you practice it in the mirror or when you have like set, like when you have set ideas of how you're going to do it. So it definitely took me a while to get there. Oh my gosh. It's just going to be me in front of the mirror now going, you are enough. And then no, you are enough. No, no, no. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Okay. Where can everyone find you and the book and everything else on the interwebs? Yes. So the most important uh, person or creature to find on the interwebs is Addie Does Stuff, which is both David and Addie Dog. So it's an Instagram that's pulled through the lens of Addie and her voice, which is in all capital letters. 
I am also on Instagram as Meg Runs Happy with all these underscores and then uh, on Twitter as well. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, you can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Herford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out wideanglepodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content, and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind-the-scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week, uh, do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. It takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone. And it really helps us out. Thanks so much, and we will see you next week.